This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we head into the rest of Revelation and the apocalyptic vision that John is sharing with his persecuted audience, standing in the throne room and paying careful attention to what we see. Indeed, we are going to continue using the same hermeneutic we have been using the entire time, Brent, the entire time in Revelation, the entire time throughout the entire study of the scripture. Why would we change it now? We are going to keep using the same hermeneutic of culture and text, or what is the phrase we like to use, Brent? Text in context. Yes, text to context. Brilliant. We're going to keep using our, our, our hermeneutic of text to context. Before we read Revelation 4, it'll be helpful to note the context surrounding the Roman priests who worked for and with the emperor himself, otherwise known as Caesar. Rome had 24 legal and official religions. Each of these religions, so Rome had 24 legal, uh, what do we call them, state-sanctioned religions. Christianity not being one. <laughs> that is correct. Not even Judaism. Right. Jewish yeah, exception, they could do their own thing, Yes, but they're not one of the 24. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Each of these religions had a head priest who served as their imperial representative, like an ambassador for Caesar. These priests served in a very public and political office, often making their appearances at public proclamations, coronations, parousias, Olympic games, and other imperial events. As history describes them, they were always seen wearing white robes and golden crowns. At times, they are described as having large golden sashes around their waist or their chest, and they would often lead the people in great chorus and song. I've mentioned my before that my belief is, my stance for our study is that Revelation was written during or at least in reference to the reign of Domitian. You may also recall uh, the discussion about uh, the largest gymnasium, and there was a passing comment. The second largest gymnasium in the world was where, Brent? Trivia? Ephesus? That's no. the largest. That's the largest. Second yeah. largest. Second largest. There was a synagogue in it. Oh, Sardis. Sardis. Second largest gymnasium in the empire. And yet here in Ephesus, we'll have the largest gymnasium in the ancient Roman world. And it was under construction in Ephesus, somewhere around the writing of Revelation. You could go to these ruins today, and you will find dominant images around the structure, as well as other cities in biblical Asia. You're going to find lots of uh, images that are just consistent throughout uh, Roman Empire in the first century. Just outside the gymnasium uh, sits a gate uh, in fact, I'm going to show you a picture of that uh, right now. There's this gate that sits right outside the gymnasium of Ephesus, and on it uh, are uh, these decorations, these wreaths and these ox heads about every 10 feet or so. There are these uh, these heads of oxen, uh, and they, they, they just kind of sit on that gate decorating it. Uh, each emperor had a different animal that they would choose to represent themselves. So if you look at your next picture... Um, there today, uh, we have a, a picture of a, a statue kind of representing Caesar. It actually came right out of the, um, it came right out of the, uh, temple to Caesar there in Pergamum that we talked about when we talked about Pergamum, uh, there was a, a statue of Caesar there. Now we have our next photo kind of zooms in on that statue. And as you can see on the zoomed in photo, you'll notice a bunch of images there, lions and eagles, uh, pro very po probably griffins, but you get the idea, uh, 
he, each emperor had different animals that they would choose to represent themselves, whether it was the strength of an ox or the veracity of a lion. Uh, common images for Domitian were the ox and the lion. He also erected numerous images of himself. Domitian loved people to worship just him, Domitian himself as Lord and God. Uh, so ox, lion, uh, himself would be an image, uh, as well as the great Roman image. We looked at it in Sardis as well. What was the, what was the Roman image? The golden eagle. The, the eagle. Absolutely. That golden eagle that would sit on top of those, um, standards. There is record of the rise of Domitian as emperor and his selection of Ephesus as his neo-chorus, his capital city. He planned his great arrival in Ephesus to coincide with the grand opening of his newly constructed gymnasium. By the way, uh, an arrival is also called in Roman Empire an advent. An advent, if we're Christians, we've probably heard that word before, talking about the arrival of Jesus. But it's a borrowed word. It's a subverted term from a Roman advent where Caesar shows up. Caesar makes his arrival. Kind of like a parousia, parousia, but not a second coming, just a coming, just an arrival, the advent. Um, and so he, when he came to Ephesus to claim it as his neochorus, he made sure that it coincided with the construction of this gigantic gymnasium, largest gymnasium in the ancient world. It would have been a much anticipated arrival. The energy in Ephesus at the time would have been electric. Many historians have painted pictures of what the scene could have looked like. One could imagine, this is somewhat speculative, but we're based enough what we know in history. One could imagine the boats arriving in the harbor and the soldiers disembarking, dressed in their shining armor with brand new medallions that read Emperor Domitian Flavius, Lord and God. They may have even uh, brought off the ship's brand new statues and other decorative emblems to install all over the city of Ephesus. Eventually, the high priests would assemble those 24 high priests, Brent, a courier might read the pronouncement and the introduction of Emperor Domitian, Caesar Domitian. And then the 24 priests of the 24 legal Roman religions would begin to lead the people in song. Dressed in white robes and wearing golden crowns, one of the most common songs of the emperor. Uh, think of, uh, what's the song of the president, Brent? Not a trick question. The song of what? The song of the president here in America. The president uh, comes and we pre we play the song. What is it called? I don't remember. Uh, Hail to the chief. Hail to the chief. Hail to right. the chief. You get the idea. Yes. Insert a little audio there. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'll let you carry it. Uh, wonderful. Uh, so, so yeah, we have we have we have the emperor and and he has his his imperial music, and the common song that we have in history for the emperor was uh, one that sounded like it came straight out of the prophet Isaiah which raises all kinds of other questions for an academic, but nevertheless, uh, the song that we have in history says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They sing this about Caesar. From about Caesar so Augustus familiar. on. I know, I know, it sounds so familiar. <laughs> uh, we found that record in a couple different places, referencing the songs of the Olympic Games. We'll talk about that later on in our session here. And the arrival of the Roman emperor. But alas, we should read Revelation chapter 4. Brent, go ahead and read us some Revelation. We'll let you do some work here. 
After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Right, so in view of the cultural context, this entire fourth chapter of Revelation is a brilliant subversion of the arrival of Caesar. There are 24 priests and pronouncements of glory, incredible songs, and the worship of a king. In the words of a a good friend of mine, it's as if John is writing this letter of apocalyptic encouragement and saying, I've been to the throne room of God, and Domitian isn't on it. In a world that was overrun with the pronouncement and pomp of a powerful ruler, John reminds his readers who the real king is. There is a more true king than the one who claims to wield the throne with power and fear. May this same reminder remain true to us in a world that claims so many things to have power and sway over our present and our future. And while it'd be tempting here to use a bunch of uh, eloquent resolutions and and try to just put a bow on our conversations, uh, this is actually what the book of Revelation is about. And so we keep moving. We want to keep moving. And we're going to move into this next chapter here, having uh, just been witnesses to this great heavenly pronouncement of who is truly in charge. Uh, The pictures and images that drive the fifth chapter of Revelation will follow right in step with what we've seen, it'll follow right in step with the parousia that we described in, uh, in, in other places. We'll continue to see this parallel in cultural context, as well as references to the Hebrew scriptures in a way that preaches a sermon underneath the surface of the letter. So go ahead and give us uh, a little bit of uh, the fifth chapter here. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals." 
right? So many of the pronouncements that we've referenced uh, in Roman settings and will continue to reference all throughout our study here were made from scrolls. History would indicate that these scrolls were often made quite large to impact the listener visually. The scroll often contained the greatness and the achievements of the emperor. Some have often suggested a tongue-in-cheek reference to a scroll with writing on both sides, meaning that the greatness of this king was so great you couldn't fit it all on one side. However, one of the things we can make a direct tie to in the culture is the reference about worthiness. Uh, If you remember when we talked about Sardis uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about the synagogue in Sardis, and we showed the pictures of this massive synagogue. So if you look in your uh, presentation there, we have one last photo, one last picture, and it's of that synagogue that we talked about there in Sardis. Now, if you remember, we had that... it's a large, beautiful synagogue that sat in the middle of that gymnasium. And in this picture that you're looking at here, you can see uh, this beautiful, ornate Moses seat and the Torah closet. Moses seat and the Torah closet. You can actually see uh, Tori, one of our students. She's sitting there on the Moses seat, or where the Moses seat would have been anyway. And then to her left, to our right, is the Torah closet right there. When they excavated the the ruins there at Sardis, they found a plaque that actually sat above the Moses seat. So kind of up above where Tori is, sat a plaque kind of above their head, and the plaque reads as follows. Only he who is worthy, take, open, read. Only he who is worthy, take, open, read. Referring to, obviously... What, Brent? The text, the Torah. Absolutely. And and I, don't, I can't remember what we all talked about when we were back in session three. We talked about synagogue and the service of synagogue. But they would bring those scrolls out for the reading in synagogue, the parasha readings, the haftarah readings. And every scroll would have had a seal that had to be opened. And every synagogue did it differently. But there was a seal there. And so this plaque is essentially saying, make sure you're worthy before you come read the word of God in the middle of synagogue. And the audience of Revelation seems to be familiar with that idea that the scrolls of God should only be read by a person who walks in faithful righteousness. So who would be worthy to open the scroll? It should be noted that the references to things like uh, Lion of the tribe of Judah or Root of David are more than just passing references to Jesus. They're intentional quotations from the Hebrew scriptures, and they're intended to speak to the readers about their current situation. We've given you the tools. You know all about Remez. You can do the work on that. We're going to keep moving here to not get distracted. But this, uh, this you, 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 know, you know where to look. You know how to dig. Let me put it that way. So let's keep reading in Revelation 5 and keep going from here, Brent. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. All right, so uh, John references this ruler who is worthy to open the scroll, because he couldn't find anybody. Who was worthy and ready to read? Nobody. But I found a ruler who was. But the reference is a deliberate play on the Exodus which is fitting for a group of people crying out for deliverance from Roman persecution. The ruler looks like a slain lamb. We should also probably point out that when he saw the throne 
in chapter 4, there was rumbling, peals of thunder, lightning. Where did we see that, Brent? On Sinai. We saw that at Sinai. There's all these Exodus references. For the Jewish people, the slain lamb had become the symbol of revolution, calling them back to the great story of God's deliverance. Add to this John's reference to the elders, the very people Exodus describes as needing to examine and identify the Pesach lamb in Exodus 12. So he talked about 24 elders, and it's the elders that have to actually examine the uh, Passover lamb to make sure it's, it's adequate. The references don't stop there. Uh, how about this phrase? Which are the prayers of God's people. That phrase appears to be drawn from, like, say, Psalm 141, verse 2, maybe Psalm 16, verse 3. I'll let you look those up on your own. By the way, passing comment, when we do this study, Brent, we often, um, we had somebody write in the other day and say, hey, can you, like, uh, put the, the passages out there? Like, tell us, like, more directly which verses you're going to be looking at uh, and reading. And we, uh, uh, what do we do, Brent? Respectfully, we decline. We, we decline <laughs> because, but that's intentional, right? Right. It's not we, because we're jerks. We don't want to do any more work. You got to dig in. We got to want to invite you to do the work, right? Because oftentimes it's not the specific verse that we're reading that is the reference, like the entire context of the passage. So if we reference something from, uh, you know, Psalm 114, well, maybe we're reading verse two, but really, right. we need to look at the entire context of Psalm 114 and maybe the Psalms around it if they're connected to each other. Absolutely. So we'll often tell you like what chapter we're in, but we actually would want you to go find which verse we're in because going and finding it is part of the journey. Or in this case, I'm going to tell you exactly which verse I want to talk about, but you're going to have to do the work to actually go find the verse and look it up. That's all done on purpose. So in that one, the prayers are, uh, which are the prayers of God's people, uh, I would I would point you towards Psalm 141.2 or Psalm 16. Three, uh, the context of those psalms are going to speak to the audience very directly. Check it out for yourself. Crying out to God for refuge and deliverance. But back to Revelation 5. Let's keep going, Brent. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. One of the songs that will continue to make an appearance in, in Revelation, uh, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, is the song of Moses from the Exodus. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they found themselves rescued on the other side, dancing along to the song of Moses. While the closing of that song, which can be found in Exodus 15, seems to have a loose connection here, the possibility is bolstered by John's Passover Exodus references all throughout the chapter. One final idea that we'll give you before we're done here today that has always jumped out to me is the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Not only is the song from Isaiah mentioned just prior in Revelation chapter 4, but the entirety of Revelation 5 is about worthiness. 
draped in a context of flying figures with many wings encircling the throne. This reaches back to our, uh, you know, looking at looking at something like Isaiah and his calling in Isaiah six. But the image clearly uh, carries itself uh, kind of all throughout Revelation. I've always loved that connection as well. So. Always text, always text to context, always Old Testament text being told to a context in order to give people to communicate message of what, Brent? Uh, hope. Hope. So we call us back to the Exodus because we want to be reminded about how God delivers his people from oppressive empires. We call ourselves back to apocalyptic literature because we want to remind ourselves that we've been here before. We know what it's like to be persecuted. We know what it's like to be oppressed. We've been in Babylon before. We've been in Assyria before. We've been in Egypt before. We know these things. We can do this. We will find deliverance. And again, it's what makes it so difficult for many of us to read the Bible. Many of us who sit in, we've never experienced that kind of oppression, that kind of persecution, nor would that be my prayer. But it is hard for us to bridge that gap of experience that we have not had. But that is the context of the book of Revelation. Probably why we get it so wrong, Brent. It's probably why we get we worry so much about the future, because we don't really know what it's like to be. It's hard for us to hear apocalyptic literature. Because we don't have the context to hear it appropriately. And this goes all the way back to episode zero, where we talk about the differences in perspective of East and West. We look at the story in an individualistic way. We don't read ourselves into the story like the early audience would have. Absolutely. Like a Jew in the first century is reading the Exodus and they were in the Exodus. They were a part of the story. Correct. Absolutely. So that's what you got to do. Yep. And certainly like... You can listen to these episodes and you're going to learn from it probably. Uh, maybe there's two or three of you out there who could teach us some things for sure. Oh, um, yeah. But really, like, we're we're just starting this for you. So if you don't go back and read the full chapters of the things we're referencing, if you don't go find your own references uh, that we don't even bring up, like, there's there's just so much more depth to, to what we're talking about. Like, we, we could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours about about these two chapters of Revelation. Absolutely. Because there's so much that John's doing. Yeah, and people are always sending me messages and and emails and different things. What about this uh, option as a remess? And I'm like, oh gosh, yeah. Like I'm always finding, because other people are doing their own work, I'm finding options that are even better than the ones that I've found. Just because I'm only one person and I've only done so much work and other people are finding others, it's just better. It's so much better. So keep at it. Yeah, another another plug for being in a discussion group, being in some kind of community where you can work on this stuff together because, you know, different people have different perspectives on this stuff. So Absolutely. Always better. All right. Um, if you have any questions about the show, you can go to BaymaDiscipleship.com. You can get in touch with us there. Thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.